John chapter 4, learning evangelism from the master evangelist. In one sense, the entire Bible is a book about evangelism, God seeking and saving a lost, dying world of human beings who are alienated from him. Yeshua's arrival on earth can be understood as a great evangelistic mission. Evangelism is very, very important. Proclaiming the good news, introducing others to Yeshua, must be at the center of who we are and what we do as individuals and as communities. Yeshua was the greatest evangelist. And in John chapter 4, in this part of the divinely inspired book of John, John gives us lessons in evangelism from the master evangelist himself. Yeshua had been in the Judean countryside. News reached him that the Pharisees, who were very influential religiously and politically, knew that Yeshua was becoming more popular than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was immensely popular. The leadership of the Pharisees didn't like Yeshua, and learning about Yeshua's growing popularity intensified their dislike of the young rabbi from Nazareth. So perhaps to avoid a confrontation, Yeshua left Judea, which was closer to the center of power of the Pharisees, and he headed north back to Galilee. He went the shorter way, through Samaria, verse 5. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Yeshua, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Yeshua said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Yeshua, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Yeshua replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, You would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Yeshua replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. 
Go and get your husband. Yeshua told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Yeshua said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with. You certainly spoke the truth. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Yeshua replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Yeshua told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. <coughs> They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want from her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Yeshua, Rabbi, eat something. But Yeshua replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Yeshua explained, my nourishment, my food, comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. As happened so frequently, Yeshua used an easily understandable thing, food, to teach others about a spiritual truth that's harder to understand. And as happens so frequently, 
people misunderstood. And in this case, it was Yeshua's disciples who misunderstood what he was talking about. The Messiah told us that he was nourished, he was fed by doing the will of God, doing what God wants us to do, doing what God wanted him to do, and by finishing the work God the Father assigned to him. That work was the salvation of human beings, this great evangelistic mission which for Yeshua included dying a horrible death on a cross. It included proclaiming the good news. His disciples, you and me, must also be nourished, fed by doing the will of God, doing what God wants us to do, and finishing the work God has assigned each one of us, which includes proclaiming the good news and building Messiah's community. Those are two of our core responsibilities, proclaiming the good news, building Messiah's community, loving our brothers and sisters, getting to know them, building Messiah's community. Rabbi Glenn, let's start with you. Some thoughts. Well, there's a sense of priority. We have many things in our day-to-day lives that we need to do, but underlying all of this is the priority of making Yeshua known to those around us, evangelism. So it's not that we... We neglect our day-to-day responsibilities, but underlying that, we are to have the same priority, the same eagerness to be about his work. So priority is the one word that, that I had in my mind, and the other is satisfaction. Isn't there a joy when God opens a door for you to talk to somebody about him, when you have one of those really lovely conversations Maybe an unexpected conversation with somebody. And there's great satisfaction in it. And whatever else was going on, whether you were hungry or whether you were busy or whatever it was, kind of fades to the back. And there's a joy in it when we do that. And the joy is there precisely because we're obeying his commission to us. Yeah, I think priority is an excellent word to describe what we see here. I think Part of the uh, situation right in the context is Yeshua is first talking to the 12 disciples. They were sent into this town to get food, and they got food, but for whatever reason, it didn't seem to be a priority to them to say, hey, you know, the Messiah is sitting outside your town. You know, that we're, we're in this area, right? This idea of evangelism doesn't seem to be a priority for them, satisfying their stomachs is. And here, Messiah Yeshua, outside of this town, witnesses to one uh, woman. She shows a change in her priorities. She was concerned with water, also a necessity to life like food. But she abandons that priority or puts this priority higher when she goes back to her town to share what God has done. 
And so just as we, we think about our physical needs and we plan accordingly, right? We, most of us here, I think today know what our next meal is going to be maybe, or when we're probably going to eat lunch or dinner tonight. Do we have that same sort of mindset for our spiritual meals, for the spiritual things God has called us to do? Do we have an idea in our minds of maybe when we might evangelize someone or do other works that God has called us to do? Do we structure and prioritize that in the same way? My nourishment is to do what God has asked me to do and to finish the work he has asked me to accomplish. That's my food. That's where I get my nourishment. That's what sustains me. Eating food is very important for human life. Yet, we can go without food for days, weeks, and survive. When I was a new believer, I was into fasting. I once fasted for 10 days. No food. I survived. So you can do without three square meals a day, uh, at least for 10 days. Food is important, but Yeshua is teaching us that something is even more important. Being close to God and be, having the sense that you are on a mission with him, that you, know, you and he are co-workers advancing his plan for the evangelism of the world and building into his kingdom those who respond. Yeshua was tired, hungry, weary after walking. He really could have used some food. And yet something was more important to him than getting that meal. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice in order to do what God wants us to do and finish the work he's asked us to do? Rabbi Glenn? I was thinking again of what I like to call the fat portions, our finances, our abilities, and our time. Um, I remember Moish Rosen, the founder of Jews for Jesus, once said, if you ever want to just rekindle your joy in the Lord, give away something big. Just do something big. Give away something. And... And it, it's a way to kickstart your joy. But really, um, the measure of our love and devotion to him is what we are willing to do without, what we are willing to give up. And some things are replaceable. You know, money, you can always go, go out and earn some more money. Uh, uh, but time is one of those irretrievable things. And I think... Often, and I have been guilty of this way too often, of treating what I considered an interruption as just that instead of an opportunity. So one of the things that we should be willing to give up is convenience, maybe a sort of predictability or security, be willing to venture out to do this new thing or to simply have our agenda be stopped midstream, interrupted, with this opportunity God is presenting. So those are some of the things that I think we need to be willing to sacrifice. Our material 
uh, goods, our time, our abilities, and um, but especially time and, and convenience. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I had convenience and all these things written down as well as my keywords. I think taking it one step further, so if we identify that this is the principle that's going on here, the idea of <clears throat> convenience versus inconvenience, the fat portion, the question that becomes, well, how do I actually improve in this area of my life? And I think it requires two things. I think it requires honest prayer to God, asking God what it is that he is calling us to do in this season and really bringing that before God in prayer and seeking that out. And then I think it also requires us to reflect on where have I done this well and when are times when I have treated God as an inconvenience and there are situations that I avoided. And looking back so that we can then look forward and say, how can I avoid doing the things that I did wrong and how can I continue to do the things that I did right in these areas and continue doing that moving forward. And sometimes it's something we do on our own. We got to start on our own. But this is also what being a community is all about because it gives us opportunities to interact with one another, but also to hopefully share these things with one another and get insight for people who've been on the same journey as us. So I would just encourage you to bring this before God in prayer and also before trusted brothers and sisters in the Lord to really brainstorm and think about how do I make God a priority in my life? We have a tendency to overschedule things that are less important and underschedule things that are really important, God and the things of God. So I think it's wise to ask ourselves, you know, there's so many things, good things you can do and schedule, but um, what are the best things to do? And that are the things connected with God that will last beyond this world. So uh, you might have heard me say this before, and this expression is not unique to me. I didn't come up with it. But the good is the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. You can be doing a lot of good things in your life, good things. But a lot of good things could, you know, not give enough time for you to be doing the best things, the things connected with God and spiritual disciplines and being proactive about, you know, communicating the truth to others and building up Messiah's community. So we want to give God the best of our time, our talents, our treasures not the leftovers. That was Yeshua's attitude. My nourishment, or what really sustains me, keeps me going, is more important to me than food, which is really important, is to do what God wants me to do and accomplish the things he's asking me to accomplish. Yeshua knew that there were people in unexpected places from unexpected backgrounds like the Samaritan woman and the other Samaritans that were on their way to see him. Yeshua knew that there were people in unexpected places and unexpected backgrounds who were ready to respond 
to the truth about him. And he wanted his disciples to always be looking for these kinds of people to tell them about him. Verse 35, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. Again, he's using a physical thing, fields, crops, harvesting, to talk about deeper spiritual truths. While it's true for some crops to take four months after planting for the crop to be ready to be harvested, that's not true when it comes to people and the harvest of humanity. There are people who are ready to respond to the truth about Yeshua right now, not four months from now. Like the Samaritan woman was ready to respond to the truth, and like these other people from Sychar were ready to respond to the truth. So we need to be aware that God is actively working on people throughout the world right now, preparing them to receive truth about God, about Yeshua, about salvation, about the Word of God. However, since we can't tell who these people are, who God is preparing and who are ready, we need to share the good news with everyone, even unlikely candidates like the Samaritan woman. Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry, who are some of these unlikely candidates for salvation today from our perspective? Well, you know, looking at, again, the original text, you rightly point out the Samaritans were considered that in their day. The disciples went into their town. They were good enough to buy food from because of the convenience probably, but they didn't seem to care as much about evangelizing them at that moment. I think today it's people we also look down upon. I think it's people of, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the people of a different political persuasion than us. Um, I find, you know, as a, as a younger rabbi, um, I find that a lot of people, we talk a lot about young people in our congregation, right? You know, whatever you want to define that as. But I think, I think most Messianic communities of, you know, churches, Messianic congregations, you know, they want young people to be involved. They want young people to be here, but they don't always make them a priority. You know, once they turn 18, it's kind of like, eh, you know, they go off to college and you know, they're kind of, well, they've been indoctrinated now and they're lost. So I think there's a lot of people who don't really go after the youth the way that they should. So I think those are two groups. is those of a different political persuasion than us and then younger people. Well, uh, where to start? Um, the pattern that I've discerned over the years in Scripture is that God has frequently chosen the least likely people. Um, he's 
given truth to some of the least likely people. And echoing what Rabbi Jerry said, some of, some of these people are the kinds of people that in each generation or in each culture were looked down upon. Um, God seems to have a certain delight in revealing himself to the simple and the down and out and the unsophisticated. And it's not that the offer isn't made to the jet setters and the sophisticates of the world, but they tend to not be interested because they are very satisfied with their lives. Um, I hang out with a lot of bikers. People think that uh, bikers are a very unlikely group, and maybe outwardly it appears so, but some of these people that I've met have the same hurts and the same fears and the same questions that anybody else has. It's just that they have a rough exterior, and you have to just look past that the, the way that he did. Um, uh, and as Rabbi Jerry said, those who are of a different political persuasion. I mean, candidly, I would think that members of the American Library Association are probably not the most likely ones uh, to receive the gospel. But the point is, it's irrelevant what we think or how we perceive it to what Rabbi Lawrence said, since we don't know who the Spirit of God is currently working on and badgering, right? Um, we should just be ready to share with anybody that comes along our path. Unlikely candidates for salvation? I think a lot of us would think Muslims, Islam. They got their own religion. They seem to be passionate believers in Allah. Why would I even want to try to, you know, tell a Muslim about the Son of God? And yet, God is saving Muslims, you know, by the thousands around the world. Uh, I know there's a lot of Christians that think that um, Jewish people are closed to the gospel and are a waste of time. I have heard Christian leaders uh, say that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not smart for Christians to be uh, trying to witness to Jewish people because this is not their time. They'll come to the Lord at the second coming. So they're not ready now. Uh, don't waste your time reaching out to Jewish people with the good news. You know, I am so glad that <laughs> many Christians, you know, never adopted that kind of foolish attitude. And there are, of course, Jewish people coming to salvation through Yeshua all over the world, especially in Israel right now. So God is at work. He loves the world. And people can be in all kinds of situations and backgrounds where they seem to be unlikely candidates for salvation. And I'm telling you, and Yeshua is telling you, that is simply not true. A question, Rabbi Lauren. Do you think some of that might be because instead of just looking at being faithful to our calling, we've be, we've kind of adopted a little bit of the world's attitude towards what works, what will what is what will be successful. So we're always kind of looking for numbers and success, and if we're not getting it here, we're just not going to bother over here. I think that's part of it, and I think that um, too much like the world, where they emphasize groups, not individuals. You know what what racial group are you? 
part of, what gender group, what, you know, sexual preference, right? That is a real problem in our society now, seeing people not as individuals, but just part of groups. God is seeing people as individuals. Who, these individuals are in groups, but God is working through his spirit on individuals and is drawing people from all kinds of groups to himself. Yeshua wanted his disciples to know that those who do the work of evangelism, who take this seriously, who make it part of their identity, will be greatly rewarded. So this is a little, you know, you've heard of the carrot and the stick. Motivation, right? You hit someone with a stick and that can motivate them to do something, but you can also put a nice, sweet, juicy carrot out and entice them to do something. The carrot and the stick, this is the carrot. Verse 36, the harvesters are paid good wages. It's hard work, harvesting. Harvesters deserve good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Yeshua is telling his disciples that Harvesters are paid good wages. You are going to be wonderfully rewarded if you take your duty seriously to engage in evangelism. It's hard to do evangelism. Uh, there's rejection. There's embarrassment. There's reactions that you don't want to experience. Yeshua is dangling the carrot. You will be hugely rewarded if you are faithful to be involved in proclaiming the good news. For a crop to be harvested, it first needs to be planted. Sometimes, frequently, the one who plants the crop is the one who harvests the crop, but sometimes someone will plant a crop and someone else will harvest the crop. God works the same way in the work of evangelism. Sometimes we will tell someone about Yeshua and salvation and eternal life and teach that person for a period of time and we will help that person come to a saving faith. However, there may be other times when we tell someone about Yeshua, but then God allows someone else to help him step over the finish line. We planted the seed, someone else does the harvesting. Don't be upset. Our effort is not wasted. 
The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? Shouldn't this motivate us, each one of us, to be actively involved in the work of gospel proclamation, the work of evangelism, the work of telling others about Yeshua and salvation. Rabbi Glenn, your thoughts. Well, a couple of things. As we were discussing this earlier in the week, I was reminded of Daniel chapter 12, uh, where God says that those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. I mean, just we can't begin to imagine the joy in store for us uh, if we'll just simply be faithful to bring bring the good news to those around us. Um, but as I think about this, and Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Jerry, well, mostly Rabbi Lauren, I mean, you had the benefit, Rabbi Jerry, of kind of growing up in the faith. But how many people did I give an unsanctified earful who tried to witness to me about Jesus before the day came when the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. I mean, uh, I know that along the way, other people uh, tried to tell me about him, and I didn't want to hear it. Um, and so think about it, that those who are doing the planting are oftentimes the ones who are experiencing the rejection. And then, you know, uh, March 7th, 1981, I get get invited to a church service, and boom, God gets a hold of me. Well, the lady who brought me to church and who witnessed me that time, uh, she more or less was like the harvester. Uh, She she was there at the the time of that transformation. Uh, So I think we fear rejection. I think that's normal and it's common. We need to get past it, but we fear rejection. And so we don't want to be the planters, but we'll be happy to be the harvesters. I led so-and-so to the Lord. No, you didn't. You were a spiritual midwife. You were there at that time that God had ordained before the world existed. But uh, so there's a sense in which sometimes we are like, you know, planters, and we're going to be experiencing rejection. Other times we get to be the spiritual midwife, and we get the joy of of being there at that moment, and take joy in either of them, because both both of these are necessary aspects of a person's salvation. Unlike you, um, I mean, we're both Jewish, like, in that way, but I was never, I never gave anyone an earful who uh, tried to tell me about Yeshua. Um, the problem was that no one in my life, prior to I, <laughs> age 18, I really did not meet any true Christian who made any effort to tell me about Jesus. Yeah, I mean, same for me at that age, but people started witnessing to me in my early 20s, and I didn't want to hear it. So here I'm a Jewish guy, you know, from a not very religious family. Maybe I'm an unlikely candidate for salvation. As soon as I heard the gospel, my freshman year of college at Northwestern University, 
it resonated with me at a deep level, and I became a believer within 10 days. So I was one of these unlikely candidates um, who was primed and ready and prepared by you know, God to respond as soon as I heard the truth about Yeshua presented to me. Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? Well, you know, I, I go back to this passage here and I read, you know, the harvesters are paid good wages. Now, obviously, the wages Messiah Yeshua is talking about here is not gold and silver in this life, but treasures in the next, right? We have other passages that talk about this. But, you know, on a very basic level, we got to remember, right? You don't get paid for a job you don't do, right? To get paid to be a harvester and a planter, it means you have to do the work. And so if you're unwilling to do this work, don't be surprised if there isn't many treasures stored up for you in heaven. That's part of the carrot is not only is there an intrinsic joy in seeing people come to the Lord. I mean, it's an amazing thing every time we do baptisms here. I know Rabbi Lauren has expressed this too, right? It's one of your favorite services when we do baptisms. Love doing baptism. Right, because we bringing people into the community. Um, but there's also the reward that God will give us in heaven for doing that work. And it isn't based on how many souls you saved, which we don't save any souls, okay? Or, you know, these sorts of things. Were you faithful? Was your priority, as we talk about priorities, doing God's work or not doing God's work? And if it was doing God's work, there's a reward for it. If it wasn't, don't expect much. Yeshua said, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. He's talking to his disciples. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. So now we're talking to his disciples, the same principle. Rabbi Glenn, who are those um, who had already done the work of planting? I believe this is a, a tacit reference to the prophets of Israel who had prepared the soil for many centuries, and many of whom were mistreated and hated for speaking the truth. But I think they were the ones who had kind of tilled the soil and prepared the way. Even if the prophet, God had been preparing Israel for 2,000 years, 2,200 years maybe since the birth of Abraham, for this moment in time, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the righteous men, the righteous women, God had been using, um, you know, these people to prepare Israel and then the world for the arrival of the Son of God. And I'm sure he was also, I'm sure he had John the Baptist in mind Absolutely. as well, because John had very recently been tilling that soil. Just as a little yeast affects a whole batch of dough or one candle brightens a dark room, just one individual can, who tells others about Messiah can affect many others and make a huge impact. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Yeshua because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. This too should motivate us to proclaim the good news. You don't know if your little statement, your little witness, your little gospel seeds that you're planting 
can take root in someone like the Samaritan woman who can bring a whole village to Messiah. I remember reading the story about uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a very famous uh, Russian writer and dissident. Uh, he was, you know, protesting communism within the Soviet Union. Very wise, gifted individual. And he wound up in the gulag, the, you know, prison camps. And there in the prison camps, uh, I think the man who shared a, you know, little mat, cot bed next to him, was a Messianic Jew, a doctor. And this Jewish believer started talking to Alexander about God and about the Lord and about Yeshua. And Solzhenitsyn became a, a, a Christian, a true Christian. And he wound up getting released from the gulag and he wrote powerful books, uh, you know, challenging atheism and communism and became one of the great voices and, and minds of, of freedom and truth in the Soviet empire before it fell. Affected millions and millions and millions of people. God used that one Jewish doctor to help Solzhenitsyn come to a saving knowledge of the Jewish Messiah. It should motivate us to be faithful, unlikely candidates, planting gospel seeds whenever we can. When people respond positively to the truth about Yeshua, Yeshua is pleased, and he gets closer to them, and he gives them even more truth. You respond well to the truth, God will give you more truth. Verse 40, when the Samaritans came out to see Yeshua, they begged him to stay in their village. Well, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, right? Obviously, he's going to say no, right? So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just the Messiah, Savior of the world. Rabbi Jerry, Yeshua and the disciples spent two days among the reprehensible <laughs> Samaritans. What do you think? Well, I think this was definitely probably an eye-opening moment for the disciples, you know, of the you know, the impact of the good news of Messiah's teaching wasn't just going to be for Jerusalem or the righteous remnant of Jews who are willing to believe. But as we're going to see, there's something expansive going on here, even to the despised Samaritans. And the Samaritans clearly, truly did believe because by spending, you know, they had this kernel of faith, right? They went out, they encountered Yeshua, they believed. But now after spending two days with him, They've grown in their belief, 
because they've experienced it for themselves. And now they have an even deeper understanding of who he is because now they're identifying him as the savior, not just of the Jews and the Samaritans, but of the world. So they not only have probably heard more teaching from Yeshua in these two days, but they've accepted it. And so there's also that lesson for us, that where they started in their faith was not where they finished. They wanted to grow in knowledge and understanding. And that's the same for us as well, or should be for us as well. Rabbi Glenn. I was reminded, and I was reminded of this last week, and I didn't want to forget it again this week. This is taking place in Samaria, and it's this most unlikely person who is the catalyst for salvation to come to, to Samaria. Centuries earlier, and we read about it in the Second Kings, that the heroes of this story who brought good news, and it was to the city of Samaria, were four lepers. And after all was said and done and, and the famine was over and they were the bearers of good news, they were still lepers. But again, God using some of the unlikeliest people to, to be the catalyst for salvation to come. Lepers, a woman with a questionable background. We need to start seeing people and situations with God's eyes as much as we can. The people of this village said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Her testimony, he told me everything I've ever done, was powerful, made a profound impact on that whole village. Many came to believe. Our testimony, how God has transformed our lives, by revealing the truth to us about Messiah, is powerful. It can build faith in others. All of us should prepare a short, sweet, tight, 30-second little clip, 30-second little testimony, 30-second little story, how God got a hold of us, changed us, transformed us. Maybe a one-minute story, a two-minute story. I challenge you to do that. Go home, write it out, edit it, tighten it. Be able to present it to someone in 30 seconds, a minute, if you have the time. It's powerful. Each one of us should have a 30-second, one-minute, two-minute little story. And when I say one minute, I don't mean five minutes or ten minutes. You'll bore someone to death. You'll never finish it. It's got to be short, sweet, tight. A minute. An elevator ride. One minute. Our testimonies are powerful, but hearing someone else's story is not enough. Each person must experience Yeshua for himself. That's what the Samaritans said to the woman. Your testimony was powerful, but now we know for ourselves because we have heard him ourselves. We've had our own direct encounter with Yeshua. We have our own direct encounters with Yeshua today. 
when we read the Bible, when we talk to those who know Yeshua, who really know him, and then when we talk to God ourselves, talk to Yeshua, asking him to reveal himself to us. John let us know that the response of these Samaritans to Yeshua is a glimpse of God's plan to bring salvation to all the nations of the world. Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel. He's the King of Israel. He's the Jewish Messiah. But God sent him to be the Savior of the world. Salvation is of the Jews. Yeshua is the King of the Jews but he's also very much the savior of the world. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry.